thought capital. The world changed dramatically. Sustainable business practices. Phenomenally important with young people. Riding the Chinese tiger. Leadership goes beyond making a profit. Let's be forward thinking. We do need to accommodate difference. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. If we're ever to have equality. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Hello from the Bureau of Meteorology for Sunday the 19th of May. What's the weather going to be tomorrow? That's probably the most obvious forecast we routinely think of. The cold front is forecast to weaken as it approaches southeast corner today. We're flat out trying to understand the present and the recent past, but it seems we're hardwired to want to know the future, despite forecasting being very hard. Everyone from the government to Google wants them. An uncertain future can be scary, but if you can put some parameters around what that uncertainty is, if you have some idea about where that future values might lie, then I think it helps you feel more confident and more in control of what's going on. Rob Hyman is a professor of statistics and the head of Department of Econometrics and Business Statistics at Monash Business School. Welcome, Rob. Why are your skills in such high demand? Everyone needs forecasts to help them plan for an uncertain future. And no matter what business you're in or what industry you're working in, having some idea about what possible things could happen in the future is going to be really helpful for planning for that. Even if they're wrong? Well, forecasts are always wrong. The trick is to, f- to do forecasting in a way that you understand how wrong they can be and what the probabilities are about them coming out in, in different ways. Let's start at the very beginning. What is the definition of a forecast as opposed to a guess? The way we think about forecasting in a modern data science sense is that it's an estimate of the value of something or other at a future time and not just an estimate of the that particular value, but understanding it probabilistically. So understanding what the probabilities might be around what values some future thing could take. So you mentioned uh, the weather um, before. So rather than saying we think tomorrow is going to be 26 degrees, a forecaster would say we think the probability of the temperature being below, say, 24 degrees is this, between 24 and 25 or something else, above 26 or something else. So you come up with probabilities for the different possible values that future could take. One of the things I like about the Reserve Bank's quarterly forecast graphs is that they come with an historical accuracy margin. This is the margin, 70% sure, 90%. Shouldn't all forecasts come with that? Absolutely, yeah. And one of the things that I try and convince my clients to uh, to do is to review how forecasts have gone in the past and to learn from them, to, to know how accurate they have been in the past and to use that information when planning for the future because the forecast accuracy is unlikely to be very much better in the future than it has been in the past. In the past... People have been obsessed with trying to predict the future, reading tea leaves, entrails of chooks, gazing at the stars. You could even argue perhaps that the desire to know the future is a major driver behind the desire for religion. Um, Is there any historical basis for when we started forecasting? The earliest ones that I know about were in the Babylonian Empire days where they had uh, diviners who would carry around a sheep's liver with the king of Babylon and when he wanted to know should he invade some city or another city they would look at their sheep's liver and the distribution of maggots in the liver was how they determined which city to attack. So you could say that the uh, very earliest forecasting software had bugs in it. (laughs) 
Well, what do you use? Modern forecasting software, what is it? I use R for my research and my teaching. And actually, I'm the author of some of the major packages that are um, used in R for forecasting. Uh, we take historical data, we build statistical models, and we output the forecasts. So from a user point of view, they will load their data into the package, they will run it through the functions in uh, the packages that I've written, and that will generate some forecasts that they can then use in decision making. Is it dangerous for people to trust forecasts too much? <laughs> it's dangerous to, uh, to over-trust them. You have to realise that forecasts are always wrong. And one of the things I always do when I'm working with my clients is insist that they have a measure of uncertainty associated with the forecast, even if they don't want them. So often I'll be working with a company and they want sales forecasts, weekly sales forecasts for the next few months. But rather than just give them my forecasts, I will always give them a range of uncertainty. It might be 80% or 95% range. And I'll say, well, here's my best estimate of the sales for this week. And I expect that with 95% probability to be between this number and this number. And then at least they know how wrong they are um, and will not be putting too much confidence in forecasts um, simply by over-believing them. You say forecasts are always wrong. You've, you've got to get lucky sometimes, don't you? If you're forecasting something numerical, you're always going to be wrong. Um, if you're forecasting an event, like it will rain tomorrow or not rain tomorrow, then sure, you're going to get that sometimes right. But if you're forecasting you know, a particular number, the GDP of Australia is going to be this specific number, then you're always going to be wrong because you'll never estimate it sufficiently accurately. Forecasting can be used in many areas, some more surprising than others. For 30 years, Don Weatherburn was the Director of the Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research at the New South Wales Department of Justice. We didn't really get into forecasting until it became clear that New South Wales had a serious prison overcrowding problem and were using inadequate tools to forecast the future trend in demand for prison beds. They need to be able to predict at least a year out what their prison population is going to be. Prison authorities would get much earlier warning of an increase in the prison population beyond prison capacity and would make appropriate adjustments to deal with that problem. The more overcrowded a prison cell gets, the bigger the risk that there's going to be tension in the jail, violence in the cell, and, you know, in the extreme, you could end up with a jail that's so overcrowded you get a riot, which can cost millions of dollars if it results in part of the jail being burnt down. But it can also result in, in death and, uh, and serious injury. The truth of the matter is that a prison system actually contains several different prisons. Maximum security prisoners have to be held separately from minimum security prisoners. Prisoners who are offenders of child sexual assault need to be kept away from other prisoners because they will be attacked if you put them together. Uh, and remand prisoners, people who haven't been yet convicted of any crime, are meant to be kept separate from sentence prisoners, people who've been convicted and given a prison sentence. So you're really managing several prison systems in the one go. And to do that, you need more than just the forecast of the total number. You need to be able to forecast male and female prisoners separately, remand and sentence prisoners separately, and so on. Forecasting is an essential part of running the New South Wales corrective system. We've heard how forecasting is used in the prison system in New South Wales. Rob Hindman, what do you need to make a good forecast? So I've identified five things that are important for something to be easy to forecast or for forecasts to be good. The first is you need to have a very good understanding of the factors that contribute to that variable that you're trying to forecast. Secondly, 
There should be lots of data available. Thirdly, the forecast shouldn't affect the thing you're trying to forecast. Four, there should be a relatively low natural unexplainable random variation. And fifth, the future should be somehow similar to the past. I'll give you two examples of, at extremes. So take forecasting the sunrise tomorrow. You probably don't even think of it as a forecast because it's so accurate and so predictable that we just take it for granted. But that's actually something that gets forecast. And it's forecast very, very well because we have a very good understanding of the factors that contribute to it. There's lots of data available going back millennia. The forecast can't affect the thing you're trying to forecast. My forecast of the sunrise is not going to change what time the sun comes up. There's very low natural unexplained ver random variation. And the future is very similar to the past. Something that's quite difficult to forecast are stock prices. We don't have a good understanding of the factors that contribute to them. There is lots of data available, but sometimes the data is not so relevant to the problem that we've got at hand. The forecast can affect the thing you're trying to forecast. If I forecast the price of Google will rise tomorrow and I'm a well-known forecaster, then that can actually affect the, the forecast. There's quite a lot of unexplainable random variation. And the future could be very different from the past if the stock that I'm trying to forecast, if something happens in that company, uh, the CEO dies, there's some unexplained increase in their quarterly earnings, and then the future is very different from the past. So if you get those five things, or at least most of those five things, then the thing you're trying to forecast is not too difficult. So the stock market is notoriously difficult to forecast. Government policy isn't very predictable either, something Don Weatherburn at the New South Wales Department of Justice has experience with. Government activity is probably the least predictable part of the process that influences the prison population. Uh, it's true that crime can be unpredictable. For example, the methamphetamine epidemic that's currently sweeping Australia has caused a big increase in the number of people in prison. But without question, the most unpredictable thing about predicting the prison population is what government's going to do. Governments have a habit of changing the law, and tiny changes in the law can make a huge difference to prisoner numbers. So, for example, if the government decided to toughen the law on bail, the prison system is extremely sensitive to the number of people who are refused bail, and that could have quite a big effect on the size of the prison population in very quick order. What's happening now is that the forecast becomes the baseline scenario for changes to the justice system. So they say, for example, we're thinking of toughening the bail laws. We want to know what effect they're going to have. So they start off with the forecast that we provide, and that's, if you like, what will happen if nothing else changes. And then they put over the top of that the effect of toughening the bail laws. So they're able to compare how things will play out if they don't change anything to how things will play out if they do change a particular thing. So it's made the whole process of planning much more effective. So Rob Heinemann, stock markets and politicians make for difficult forecasts. What kind of problems do your forecasts solve? So I can tell you the sort of companies I've worked with and the sort of problems that they've had. So I've worked with airlines where they're trying to forecast passenger traffic on city routes, so Melbourne Sydney route, for example. I've worked with many retail companies where they're trying to forecast sales and demand for their products. 
I've worked with uh, the federal government. So the pharmaceutical benefit scheme is something that needs to be forecast every year because the government subsidises pharmaceutical products. They don't know how many people are going to turn up in the chemist asking for different drug types in advance, so they need to forecast that. Um, electricity demand, so forecasting how much power is going to be needed tomorrow, next week, or in 10 years' time uh, is all important. Forecasting for tomorrow is helping to comp plan generation capacity um, and making sure that we're not going to have a blackout. Uh, forecasting in 10 years' time is all around, well, what generation do we need to develop to make sure that we can meet the demand that's going to be there. Forecasting on Australian tourist demand, forecasting call centre volumes, uh, mortality rates, population, lots of things. What's the hardest of those? That's, a, that's as broad a range as I can think of. You didn't mention the Melbourne Cup, but aside from that, it's pretty much everything. <laughs> the, the hardest problems are where there's not very good data or there's no data at all. For example, forecasting the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, some of the products that are on the scheme there's no data for because they're new products. I can't build a statistical model because I haven't got data to put into my model. And so then you rely on judgmental forecasting, uh, which is much more difficult to do um, and much less scientific in the sense that you're building a mathematical model that's describing things. Have you ever made a totally disastrous forecast? Something embarrassing? Yes, um, of course. Every so forecast tell us about that, it. Every forecaster makes mistakes. Probably the one that I'm most embarrassed about was very, very early in my career, and I was asked by one of Australia's largest car manufacturers to, uh, to forecast their sales. They only gave me 15 years of data, and they asked me for a 15-year forecast. And I was young and naive enough and uh, wanting to get involved in this industry that I said yes. I would, should never have agreed to do that because with 15 years' data, you really shouldn't be forecasting more than a few years ahead. You don't have enough history to know what's going to happen uh, longer term. And there are um, so many variables, obviously. And, and there's lots and lots of variables, yeah. So the, the most embarrassing stuff is usually when someone wants you to forecast more than the data will bear or where there's sufficient change in the environment that your model is not likely to hold down the track anyway. So that happens in electricity demand all the time. You'll get data, and they might give you 15 years of data, and they want a 20-year forecast. Even if you had more data, 20-year forecast in electricity is crazy because... Even five years, we might have batteries in every house. People might be having electric cars. The, the profile of usage is going to change a lot. We know it's going to change a lot. So forecasting very far ahead in the electricity demand area is, is a little foolish. What's the forecast that you're most proud of? Um, something that had an outcome that you wanted to go home and tell everyone about? I'd say the work I did on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, largely because of how bad it was before I got involved. So back in the early 2000s, the Australian government had underestimated the expenditure on the PBS by nearly a billion dollars in two consecutive years. Now, a billion dollars is a lot of money for a government to find. They called me up and said, do you think you can help? And so I developed a new forecasting tool for them, uh, which reduced the margin of error from about a billion dollars down to about plus or minus 50 million. Uh, which is a huge advantage. That is um, an incredible difference. And uh, so not only did that help uh, solve a major national problem, but the models that I developed for that project, uh, we then put out in open source software so that everyone else could use them. 
And they've become one of the most widely used forecasting models in the world that's now used by maybe a million organisations around the world. Did you forecast that it would be so successful? No, I didn't. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have copyrighted or patented it? Or... <laughs> no, I, actually, my, my policy is not to patent or copyright anything that I do. Uh, all of my algorithms get put out as open source code um, with a free license for anyone to use. Uh, and I think that's a much better way to work. It means that my work has far more impact. What's the forecast that you haven't tried yet that you want to? So the one that I really want to do is to forecast individual household energy usage in Victoria. Uh, and the reason for that is Victoria is the only place in the world where there's almost 100% rollout of smart meters. So we have really good energy data down to household level for the entire state. Um, there's about 8 million metres. And it's the only place in the world where it has both 100% rollout and where one organisation controls all those metres, which in this case is the state government. Everywhere else, including in Australia, there's either not 100% rollout or the metres are owned by lots of different organisations and so you can't actually build a, a coherent model across all of that data. So I'd love to get my hands on that data and take account of solar generation as well as the temperature and humidity effects on usage, cloud cover, use of air conditioning. I think it's possible. It's an enormous data set, but I think I, I know how to build a model like that. The problem is I don't have the data. That would seem to be the most obvious thing that the government would want to give you of, on an offer like that. I'm working on it. We've spoken about the hardest and the easiest forecasts. What are the most surprising forecasts? So one area of forecasting which may be a little surprising is when you're looking for surprises. So I've done some work recently with uh, the Queensland rivers where we're looking to see where the health of the river is different from what we forecast it to be. So we have a lot of measurements on things like the turbidity and the conductivity and the level of the river. And we build a model that forecasts what that's going to look like in the next hour or in the next day or two. And if it's very different from what's forecast, that suggests there's a problem. There's either a pollution event or there's something happened to the meter that's, that needs um, checking. And so we actually don't care very much about the thing with, about our forecasts themselves. We, we care about when what we see is very different from what we forecast. And how much success are you having in finding the surprises? That works going very well. And the uh, Queensland Department of environment and science has uh, using our methods uh, to monitor their rivers and we're doing it uh, with a pilot on a few rivers and then we're going to roll it out across many more sensors across the state. Where's data science and forecasting heading? I'm asking you to forecast forecasting here. The models are getting more and more complicated and the data are getting more and more rich uh, with lots of different variables and a lot more data being collected. But eventually I imagine Artificial intelligence will be able to build the models for us. I don't know when that's going to happen, but at some point you would expect that the sort of thing I do as a researcher in trying to come up with new ways of modelling data and using my models for forecasting, a computer's going to do that better than me and is going to be able to design better models and then implement them, and then I can retire. Rob Heinemann, it's been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you also to Don Weatherburn for talking to us about the prison system. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. 
You can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Tina Zanu, editor is Nadia Hume, sound production by Gareth Popplestone. Executive producer is Helen Westerman. Thought Capital is recorded at Monash School of Media, Film and Journalism.